not change no matter where we go. It's the importance of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what country you're in, in what culture you find yourself in, you must preach Christ. That's one of the things that we see as a missionary. The missionary goes and he preaches Christ. The missionary does not go out primarily to, to feed and clothe the poor or to teach people to read or to teach people music. All those things are good. All those things may be involved in the ministry of a local church, but that's not the main focus of a missionary. A missionary goes to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and pray that the Lord would use it to save his people. The same in any church. In this church, our church in Mexico City, we go to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that in all of Scripture. We see the examples of Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. We see how they go out in their missionary journey, not just to help people in general, but they go out and they preach the gospel. That's why they face such persecution. That's also why the Lord gave such great results, because they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, that's not something that we just do when we read the New Testament, but something we do from the Old Testament as well. In the conference this past week, you heard preaching from the Psalms. You saw Christ in the Psalms. We have the same thing here in this passage. We can see what God teaches us about himself and about salvation in Christ in all of Scripture. And you know, of course, that, that many people do not understand how we can talk about finding Christ in the Old Testament. And many people think it's strange that we see illustrations of salvation in the Old Testament. But of course, we're not making any, anything up. The Bible is a unified whole. The Bible has the same theme from Genesis to Revelation is the glory of God revealed in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. In our passage today, we read a story that should make every Christian immediately think about his salvation. The story of David, who is a type of Christ in many parts of his life, who, who points us to Christ in many aspects of his life. We can see that here as well. Just by the story, comparing to the rest of Scripture, we can see here very clearly an illustration of salvation. A story that is a very clear picture of how God deals with us in salvation for Christ's sake. We see in this message that just as Christ, just as David showed mercy to Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake, so God shows mercy to us for Christ's sake. We need to consider first of all the context of this story because you probably heard it, but it's not the most well-known Bible story. So we need to see the context first of all. David begins the story with a question. Go back to verses 1 to 4 of this chapter. And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul? Now David asked this question at this moment. At this time he is already king over all of Israel. We read that in chapter 8. God had given him rest from all his enemies, as we read in chapter 7. And so now David can focus on the promise that he made to his friend Jonathan, as we'll see in just a moment. But David had to ask this question. David had to ask, is there anyone alive from the Saul's offspring? Because God had taken away the kingdom from Saul for his sin. And Saul had died along with Jonathan and his other sons at the hands of his enemies. We read in 1 Chronicles 10 and verse 6, Thus died Saul and his three sons, and his whole house died together with him. So God destroyed Saul's house. God took away the kingdom from him and gave it to David. And so David had to ask if anyone knew anyone who might have survived from Saul's house. The question is, why did David want to know that? Why was David concerned to know if there was anyone left from Saul's house? The verse says, 
Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That refers to the covenant that David had made with Jonathan. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, we read of David and Jonathan's love and the covenant they made. And specifically, if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan was going to investigate how his father felt about David. We read what Jonathan said to David. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 13 to 17. Beginning of verse 12. Verses 12 to 17. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow at any time, or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I then send not unto thee, and showeth thee, the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do thee evil, then I will show it thee, and send thee away, that thou mayest go in peace. And the Lord be with thee, as he hath been with my father. And thou shalt not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord, that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again, because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan knew that he was not going to inherit the kingdom, because God had promised to take it away from his father. He knew that David was going to reign instead. And so part of the covenant that they made was that David was not going to allow Jonathan's name to be taken away. David was going to do good to Jonathan's offspring and protect them. And what David had promised, we see he did here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So he asked, does anyone know of any descendants of Saul? And they bring the servant from the house of Saul who was called Ziba. He said in verse 3, go back to 2 Samuel 9, verse 3, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. You know why he was like that? We read in chapter 4 of this book, And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass that she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So in verse 4, Ziba tells David where they can find his son. And David sends for Mephibosheth to be brought into his presence. That's the context. It's important to understand the context of the story. David remembers the covenant that he had made with Jonathan years ago, and he seeks a descendant from the house of Saul, from the house of Jonathan, to show him favor as he had promised. We see beginning in verse 5, we see what David does. First, David brings the son of Jonathan into his home. Now, imagine the situation. In this context, in the culture of these days, many times a king would destroy all the offspring of the previous kings to make sure no one was there to rebel against him. So no doubt Mephibosheth was afraid when he was called to appear before the king. It could be he was afraid to die. He did not know what was going on. We read in verse 6 that he came and prostrated himself on his face. He fell on his face and did reverence. That speaks here not of worship, of course, but the respect due to the king. But it may also show his fear. He doesn't know what's going to happen because of his his humble attitude here. He's begging for his life. But look at what David said to him in verse 7. Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And then David brings him home. He shows him mercy. The word here is the word for covenant love. 
He says he will return all of Saul's lands to him, restore his inheritance, allow him to always eat at his table. It speaks of favor, speaks of honor. That's what David does. But David does not do that because Mephibosheth deserves it. David does not do that because he knows Mephibosheth really well, has a great affection for him. No, it says he does it for the love of Jonathan, his father. As he said at the beginning of the chapter, that he wanted to show mercy for Jonathan's sake. So up to this point, maybe it seems just like a nice story. They make us think of David as a really good person, as a good friend. He remembered his promise towards his friend who had passed away. Maybe we think as well about how we should, have, we should be better friends, we should show love to those who don't deserve it. But while those principles are not wrong, and while we can see those things here, that's not the point of this story. Again, the Bible points to one thing in one way or another from beginning to end. The whole Bible is focused on the glory of God shown in Jesus Christ. And so here, when we read the story, when we read this passage, instead of focusing on David as a good friend, instead of focusing on David as a good person, instead of focusing on ourselves and how we should also show love for others, we should focus on Christ. This story illustrates perfectly the salvation that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Let's spend the rest of our time proving that. Proving that this story illustrates God's salvation. Just as David showed mercy to Mephibosheth for the love of Jonathan, so God shows mercy to us for Christ's sake. And we see that here in several ways. First, <clears throat> first of all, just as David and Jonathan made a covenant before the story, promising to care for each other's offspring, God the Father and God the Son made a covenant in eternity past to save the people. That covenant is what theologians call the covenant of redemption. The covenant that the Father and the Son made in eternity past to save a people. The Father choosing the people. The Son coming into the world in the fullness of time to save us from our sins and make us children of God. We can see this covenant in many parts of the Bible. Let's go to Psalm 2, verses 7 to 8. Psalm 2, verses 7 to 8. Reading first verse 7. Psalm 2 and verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten. Now, the New Testament quotes this psalm several times, showing very clearly that it refers to Christ. This is a messianic psalm. The clearest passage of that is Acts chapter 13, which says, God fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see that Psalm 2 is clearly a prophecy of Christ. The same thing in Hebrews 1. This refers to Christ. It's the Father speaking to the Son. And the Father says to the Son in verse 8, Psalm 2 and verse 8, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. The Father promised the nation to the Son. He promised to give them to him as his inheritance. Now the question is, when did that happen? When did this conversation between the Father and the Son take place? Well, it has to be before creation, because Ephesians 1 teaches us that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Sometime in eternity past, before the creation of the world, the Father promised the Son the nations for an inheritance. We read in Ephesians 1, chapter 18, that the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. 
The inheritance of Christ is found in the saints, in us. The Father promised the Son, the elect, as his inheritance. The Son promised the Father to willingly submit to him and come into the world to live, to die, to rise again, to save us from our sins. That's the covenant of redemption, planned before the foundation of the world. The plan of salvation is not a plan B. It's not something God invented when man fell into sin. Our salvation through Christ has only ever been the divine plan. That's what a covenant redemption reflects. It shows us that agreement, that covenant made between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world to save a people and to give them to his Son as an inheritance. So this previous covenant that David had made with Jonathan, which is what caused David to go and seek out Mephibosheth to show him mercy and favor, illustrates what God did in eternity past to plan our salvation. Just as David and Jonathan made a covenant, so the Father and the Son did the same. And we see what happened. The Son came into the world. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again. And He sits at the Father's right hand interceding for us. Because of that promise the Father made to the Son, He sought us out and saved us. Exactly like David in the story. Because of a previously made covenant, He sought out Mephibosheth to show mercy to him. So this story with that covenant between David and Jonathan, first of all, illustrates our salvation in that it shows the covenant of redemption and what the Father and Son did before the foundation of the world to save us from our sins. Secondly, we see that just as David sought out Mephibosheth in order to fulfill that covenant, and it was not Mephibosheth who sought out David, so God seeks us out in order to fulfill his covenant. We never seek him. We know the Bible is very clear on that matter. Romans 3, 10 to 11 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. But there is no one who seeks God, so in order for anyone to be saved, God must seek him out. God has to seek out that person, just as David sought out Mephibosheth in this story. And here we see very clearly, Mephibosheth did not seek out David. Mephibosheth did not think that he deserved to be welcomed by David with favor. In the same way, we did not seek out God. We do not deserve anything from him. We can't be saved by our own good works. And we're far worse than Mephibosheth. Because he had done nothing against David. But all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us deserve death, which is the wages of our sin. And yet God seeks us out to show us mercy, to show us His faithful and covenant love. What covenant? The covenant we just saw, the covenant of redemption, that promise made with His Son to save us. God has to seek His people to fulfill the covenant He made with His Son. So we see that salvation has nothing to do with us in that sense. It has nothing to do with our being, with our attributes, with our faithfulness. It has to do with God's being, God's attributes, and God's faithfulness. Because of the promise, the covenant He made with His Son, He will seek out His people and save every one of them. Not because we deserve it, but because that's what He promised. Just as David showed that mercy to Mephibosheth, so God shows mercy to us and infinitely more. Because again, Mephibosheth had not done anything against David, in our case, God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were stubborn rebels against the Holy God. And yet he still sought us out to show us mercy. Not because of anything in us, but only because of his faithfulness to his own covenant. 
That's who our God is. We read next to this 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So I ask you, have you received that love from God? Have you received that mercy from God in salvation? You don't deserve it, but your salvation doesn't depend on you. It depends on God's faithfulness. And He promises that salvation to all who believe on Him, who call upon His Son to be cleansed of their sins. All those will be saved. We see next that just as Mephibosheth deserved nothing from David, and just as there was no relationship between him and David that gave him the right to deserve the king's favor, so we do not deserve anything from God in ourselves. Understand, David did not know Mephibosheth. David did not only did not even know that Mephibosheth existed. At the beginning of the chapter, he had to ask if any of Saul's offspring was still there, was still around. Mephibosheth had never done anything for David to deserve the treatment that he received in this chapter. And in the way, Mephibosheth never could have done anything for David. Because of his disability, he was crippled in his feet. It's the same in salvation. We deserve nothing from God. We are not his children by nature. God's word says we are children of wrath. We are children of our father, the devil. And we are not only spiritually disabled, we are spiritually dead. Dead in trespasses and sin. And so whatever we receive from God, we receive by pure mercy, by pure grace, not by anything in us. That's why it says in Ephesians 2 that we're not saved by works, but only by the grace of God. We read in Titus 3 that salvation is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. We receive our salvation only because of that covenant made between the Father and the Son. That covenant of pure grace. Because... The covenant that God made with the first man, with Adam and Eden, was a covenant he did not fulfill. He fell into sin. Because of that, we too cannot keep that covenant. And we cannot give God the perfect obedience that he requires. Therefore, salvation has to be by grace. It cannot be by anything in us, by what we deserve, by our obedience. It can only be by what God has done for us. Mephibosheth here did not deserve this treatment. It was pure grace. It's the same for us in our salvation. And not just saving someone who is lame in their feet. God saves spiritual corpses. God saves men and women, young people who are dead in sins and need the salvation that only comes from Him. Like that parable that Christ told in Luke 14. A man made a supper and invited many, but everyone had an excuse not to come became angry and told his servant to go down to the roads and to bring the poor, the meek, the lame, and the blind. That's how we are before salvation. But of course, worse, we're dead. God does not save good people who deserve salvation. God saves spiritually dead people who were rebels against Him. And so we do not give Him anything to deserve our salvation. He saves us only by His grace. And finally, we see that this story illustrates our salvation because just as David invited Mephibosheth into his presence and gave him possessions and made him live with his family, so God calls us from afar off to be in his presence and eat at his table. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 7. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. 
and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continue. Look at all that Mephibosheth received. And again, not because of anything in him, but only because of that covenant that God had made, that David had made with Jonathan many years before. He was first of all called into the presence of the king. In verse 4, we read that he was living in a place far away, a place called Lodabar. Lodabar literally means a place without grass. It seemed like a very nice place to live. He was called from that faraway place without grass to be in the presence of the king. The privilege that not, not all people receive, very few people receive that privilege. He received an inheritance. All the lands of his grandfather Saul. Everything he would have inherited if his father Jonathan became king. And perhaps more importantly, he received a family. He says he always ate at the king's table, which speaks of intimate communion, of family fellowship. Let's begin the verse 11. He would eat at David's table like one of the king's sons. Haven't we received the same? We've been called from our own Lodabar, from a dry, arid place where there is no water, a dead place where there is no life. And we've been called into the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Heavenly Father. As Paul says in Colossians 1.13, the Father has delivered us from the power of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so now all the blessings of God's presence are ours. Because the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We're in His presence. We've been given an inheritance. An inheritance <clears throat> far better than the physical lands of this world because it's an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We enjoy intimate fellowship with God. We eat at His table every moment. He sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And not only are we invited to sit at the table with the family, not only are we treated like children, like Mephibosheth, but God has made us part of His family. We are now children of God by adoption. We are part of the family of God. And we await one day the wedding supper of the Lamb forever, as we read in Revelation 19. One day in glory we will enjoy God's presence and intimate fellowship forever, without sin, without injury. An incredible illustration of salvation we have here. This is our salvation. This is the good news for everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and is saved from their sins. Let's rejoice in our salvation. Let's rejoice that we've been called from afar off that we've been regenerated, that we now enjoy God's presence and God's inheritance, and that we are now God's children. Thank God for this story that so clearly illustrates to us what God has done for us in our salvation. But before we finish, what happens to those who reject the grace and love of God? We read in Mephibosheth here in verse 13 that he always ate at the king's table. Mephibosheth continually enjoyed these blessings that had been given to him by the pure grace of David. But we have a very interesting contrast in the next chapter. Chapter 9, we have this story full of grace and mercy and faithful covenant love. In chapter 10, we find David also trying to show mercy to someone, but this time he's rejected. Let's read 2 Samuel 10, verses 1-7. to It came to pass after this that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hadon his son reigned in his stead. 
Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants for his father. And David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanan their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he has sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Wherefore Hanun took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told it unto David, he sent to meet them, because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown, and then return. And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, the children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrael and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen, and of Kimaka, 1,000 men, and of Ishtal, 12,000 men. And David heard of it, he sent, the, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. After that, we read that the Ammonites and their allies, the Syrians, were completely conquered and defeated. But here we also see a kind of illustration in regards to salvation. If we read in Acts chapter 17 that God now commands all men everywhere to repent. The call to repentance is mercy. Because the person who repents and believes in Christ will be saved. God is calling everyone to repentance by his great mercy. But many do not want to. Just like King Hanun here, many reject God's salvation. Many reject the loving and merciful God. And not only reject him, but rebel against him. Here King Hanun not only refused David's merciful act, but he also embarrassed his servants, shaving off half of their beards and cutting off half of their garments. It means nothing to us now, but it was a thing, a sign of great contempt in that time, that the men were ashamed. And verse 6 says, When the children of Ammon saw they stank before David, they began to gather their army. They knew they had done something that was going to cause a problem. It's the same thing in the spiritual realm. God's mercy is shown in his call to all to repent. We read in Titus 2.11 that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That is, the message of the gospel has been proclaimed. God's salvation has been manifested to this world. Very direct and specific. You and I, we have received this message. God's grace, which is for salvation, has been manifested to us. How will we respond? How will you respond? Will you respond like Mephibosheth, humbly receiving God's grace and enjoying his privileges forever? Or will you respond like Canaan, despising and rejecting God's mercy and then being destroyed? May God save his people and pour out his grace upon all. So to read this story, instead of just focusing on David as such a good friend, instead of taking from this passage how we can be better friends, let's focus on Christ, who is the center of the story. Let's meditate all this week on this great illustration of our salvation. David treated Mephibosheth with favor and love and grace, not because of anything in him, not because he deserved it, but only because of his father Jonathan, because of the covenant David had made with Jonathan. Even so, God deals with us, not according to our good works, not because we deserve anything, but only because of his beloved son, because of the covenant he made with him. God is faithful. God is faithful to his covenant. Everything is because of Christ. 
If we're saved by his name, by his life, his death, his resurrection, saved by his merits, we've been regenerated, raised from the dead, called to the presence of the great king, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and adopted into his family. We can eat at his table forever, enjoying his presence. (coughs) What an incredible illustration of our salvation. If you're still waiting outside and rebelling against God, believe in him today. Come to him in repentance and faith to enjoy His great love and mercy. And Christian, know who your God is. Rejoice in His mercy. Rejoice in your salvation. Meditate on this story that so clearly illustrates the salvation that you have received. Praise the Lord during all this week that just as David showed mercy to Mephibosheth through the love of Jonathan, so God shows mercy to us for Christ's sake. To Him be all the glory. Close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we praise your name for what you have done for us in salvation. We thank you for your covenant. We thank you for what you planned before the foundation of the world to save us from our sins. And Lord, we can see very clearly from this story the illustration that it's not because of what we deserve. We see that in our own lives. We were sinful rebels against you. And yet you saved us only because of your faithful love and mercy. And we pray that would encourage us. As we go through difficult times, as we struggle with sickness and other uh, trials that you send into our life, we pray that you would encourage us by helping us to focus our eyes upon Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and to remember that we have received these great blessings of your presence of our salvation that is forever, that we will one day be with you, spending eternity with our Savior, with our God. Lord, I pray that that would be the thing that sustains us and upholds us in difficult times. Lord, we thank you for your church here in Port Hope and for what you have done and for what you are doing. Lord, we pray that your gospel will continue to be proclaimed here. We pray that you would bring in the unsaved from this area, Lord, that they would be able to come and hear the gospel and be saved by your grace. Amen. That you would give power in the preaching. That you would give spiritual and physical strength to the minister. That you would help every member, uh, every congregate here in this church to be faithful to your word. To be faithful to, to this part of the body of Christ. To be faithful in spreading the gospel with their family members and friends. Lord, I pray that you would do a great work here. Amen. That you would show your blessing. And that you would fill your church with your Holy Spirit. We trust that you will do this in your time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.